This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, today we have an amazing class about one of the major people in our Chumash and his support system. You don't really realize, for every major person, there must be a support system. And who are his support system? Well, his father, his mother, his sister, his uh, stepmother, Bitya, the daughter of Paro, his wife, Sephora. For every great man, there must be a support system. And here is his support system, whole phalanx of, of women around him in his life, which gave him support and raised him to what he was. We're going to talk about that. And the first verse in the Torah, in this parasha, deals with names. These are the names of the Jewish people who are coming into Egypt. And we know there's a famous line, we say this, and we say a prayer on the person who passed away. Uh, King uh, Solomon says, better is a good name than good perfume. The names are very important. A person's name is their essence, defines their essence. That's why when a person gives a child a name, it's very, very critical to give a child a very good name. Someone who, something which a child will think about and think about, who am I? This is who I am. What does this name represent? Who does it represent? What is the history of this name? Very, very critical in the psychology of raising children. Good names are very important. These are the names of B'nai Israel. So the question is, why does the Torah repeat these names? They're mentioned already in Pasha Vayigash, you know, 70 people uh, descended into Egypt, and now the Torah lists them again, all over again. So the Midrash answers that Shem means name and Shem also means reputation. So in Parsha Vayigash, it mentions their names, their physical names, but here it mentions their reputation. Their reputation grew. This is Rabbi Salavechik. He says their reputation grew because they did Teshuvah. The son, the brothers of Yosef did Teshuvah. So that's how their reputations grew. Amazing idea. They were true by Teshuvah. How do we know they became Baal Teshuvahs? Because, because before Joseph passed away, he asked them to bury him. He asked them, please take my body when you leave Egypt. Take me and bury me in Israel. Now, who does he ask? He doesn't ask his children. He asks his brothers. And that's a sign he trusted his brothers. That's amazing. And which brothers helped him the most hate? The brothers were hated the most. Shimon and Levi. Levi, we know that Moses was said Levi. Here, Levi was the one who hated him. One of the brothers hated Moses the most. Hated Joseph the most, and who buries Joseph? Moses is the one who carries Joseph out of Egypt. So, a descendant of the tribe of Levi who hated Joseph the most was the one who buried, helped to bury, helped to bury Joseph. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so that is a bit of the idea. They're the Shemot, these names, they're not just names, they're reputation. And uh, Moses, the grandson of Levi. And he was the one who buried Joseph. The Midrash says the Torah is emphasized. Also, they never changed their Hebrew names. One of the biggest tools we have against assimilation is not to change the names, to give good Jewish names to our children. This way, the children look at their names and think about who they are. So name is very important. It's one of the three things that kept people alive, the Jewish people alive in Egypt. Their names their dress and their language, the way they dressed and the way that their language was different from everyone else. And that enabled them to survive in Egypt, even though 
Eventually, the Torah tells us that they became idol worshippers. Most of them, not all of them, not the tribe of Levi, but a lot of them became idol worshippers. They couldn't resist the blandishments of the society around them. And what's interesting also is the name of Moshe. Moses' name, Moshe, was given by his stepmother, Bitya, Batya, Bitya. The Torah calls her Bitya, so I'm going to call her Bitya. Our schools started changing it from Batya to Bitya, so Bitya is the, is the only time she's mentioned is in Divrei Hayamim, in the Book of Chronicles, and her name over there is Bitya, so I'm going to call her Bitya. Although a lot of people started calling her Batya, which means the daughter of God, but Bitya also means the daughter of God. Okay, so the irony is that his name, Moshe, Moses, was not a Jewish name. And the Midrash tells us that his Jewish name was Tov, good, because it says, and uh, his mother saw she was, he was good. Or Tuvia, his name was Tuvia, and uh, there's different names given, uh, Midrash give different names for Moshe, Jewish name. But which name stuck to him was the name given to him by his stepmother, Bitya, Pharaoh's daughter. I pulled him out from the water. Hey, hey, Presto, his name is now going to be Moshe, which means I pulled him out from the water. So she gave him the name. The Gemara says, Rameir says his name was Tov. Rameir says his name was Tovia. But because of her act of kindness and adopting him and raising him, she was given the honor that the name she gave, that Bitya gave, stuck to him. So we call him Moshe, Moses, from this amazing idea that she raised him she invested in him, and she gets to call him his name. Amazing. So the heroines behind the hero. Who are the heroines behind the hero Moses? The midwives. We know that Pharaoh tried to get the midwives to kill the children. All the boys, the male children born, killed them. And who are these two women? Shifra and Puah. Shifra and Puah. The names are Shifra. Rashi says, the Shaperet have blood to clean the child when they're born there. Filthy, clean them, Shifra and Pua. She would make very cooing noises, Poo, Poo, Pua, to calm the babies down. And who are these two famous women, the midwives of Egypt, Shifra and Pua? Nonetheless, the rabbis say they were Yocheved and Miriam, the mother and the sister of Moshe. These are the women who raised Moshe when he was a little baby till the age of six months. Then they hid him in the river in a basket. This girl, Bitya, the daughter of Pharaoh, which is ironic, really, that this, this uh, savior of the Jews was raised in Pharaoh's house, we have to talk about. And Bitya gave him his name, and then she's looking for a nurse, a wet nurse. Who's going to nurse this baby? I can't nurse him. So who's going to nurse him? And straight away, Miriam runs up and says, I have the ideal witness for you. Who's the wet nurse? Happens to be Moses' mother. So Yocheved now is enrolled by Pharaoh's own daughter to be the wet nurse for her own, daughter, her own son. And she's getting paid to nurse her own son. Think of this amazing. If, who, can, who can arrange this sort of thing? Only God. God can arrange this thing. That the biggest enemy of the Jews is the one who's raising the savior of the Jews in his own house. His daughter is raising the savior. And his daughter is paying the mother of the baby to feed the baby. This is wild. So Until he was five years old, he was fed and raised by his own mother. So... This is the, the way that Moses was raised by these very amazing women. Miriam, who looked after his sister, or saved him, and saved his life. And his mother, Yocheved, are the ones who raised him. And then he's raised, he's given back to Pharaoh's daughter, Bitya, 
he's raised in the royal palace as a prince of Egypt. And hence, we have many stories about the prince of Egypt. Who's the prince of Egypt? Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, our great uh, leader and great prophet. And our uh, general, Rambam says, Rambam calls him the first king of Israel. He was the first king of all the tribes. Everyone followed him, Moses. And then he goes to Midian, we're going to talk about, and he marries the daughter of Yitro Tipora. So these are the famous, these are the women, these are the women who had the most impact on our great leader, Moses. So there's uh, the person who, the great man, and then there's the enablers behind them. Who are the enablers behind them? His mother, Yocheved, his sister, Miriam. We don't hear much about the father, Amram. Obviously, there was some kind of uh, give and take between Moses and Amram and his brother Aaron, which we're going to see more later on in the story. And But the, the neighbors, his main neighbors were the wife, the women in his life, his mother, his sister, and his stepmother, Bitya, and then his wife, Zipporah. And these are the main neighbors in his, in his life. The Gemara Sota says, Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva says, by virtue of the righteous women of his generation, Israel was redeemed from Egypt. All the anonymous women who brought children into this genocidal society kept the Jewish people going. These are the heroines of our story. These are really the heroines of our story. So from today until Simchat Torah, from today till Simchat Torah, which we hope we're going to celebrate after Rosh Hashanah, when we finish the whole Bible, there's one name that keeps on coming every single parasha, except for one, repeated over and over again. And that name is Moshe. Moshe, 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 every time. But Eber Hashem, Moshe, Moshe. It's always Moshe. Moses, a giant among the great. The conditions, we get all these lists of his uh, biography over here in, in this week's parasha. Number one is we get the conditions of his birth under threat of his life danger. Well, Pharaoh said to, to kill all the male children, throw them in the river, through the Nile, to the crocodiles. They'll drown or they'll be eaten by the crocodiles. Number two is saving and adoption by the daughter of Pharaoh herself, with his own mother as a wet nurse. Number three, his rise in the household of Pharaoh and his renunciation of all this as he comes to the aid of the persecuted Jew we're going to talk about. Thus, identifying himself with his people. And then he's forced to flee Egypt. Imagine, exile from an exile. Number four, his new life as a shepherd in the wilderness of Midian. And then he's called upon by God to be his messenger and free his people. Number five, his humility. He wants, he doesn't want the job. I don't want to be leader. I don't want to be the leader. His defiance of Pharaoh and the might of Egypt. Number six, his ascent to Sinai, where he stood with the angels before God, whatever that means. Number seven, his life as a shepherd again, but this time as a shepherd of the flock of Israel. His life from one shepherd to another shepherd. First, he is shepherding sheep, and now he is shepherding the people of Israel. Number eight, teaching them, guiding them, judging them, suffering with them. Number nine, not only did he alter the course of Jewish history, he altered the course of humanity. This is something which we, you know, we have to appreciate more, that we are the ones who gave the Bible, the Torah, to the world. We gave the Torah to the world, we Jews. We get the Torah from Sinai, 
and eventually it gets to the rest of the world in different, uh, I wouldn't say it's completely accurate, definitely not, because yeah, it was translated, we, we talked about Hanukkah, it was translated and the Septuagint into Greek, and then from Greek to Latin, from Latin to English, and then to other languages, a lot was lost in the translation, plus the, the commentaries, the oral laws was not translated, so that, but that part of the Torah is completely lost to everyone else, but the ideas of the Ten Commandments of morality, of ethics, uh, and law, law and order, came from the Torah. It's interesting if you go to the, the uh, one of the big, uh, uh, the High Court, uh, one of the biggest statues of this, the Statue of Moses, the High Court of America. I'm talking about the Supreme Court building. The biggest. It was very funny because I saw a video of a secular Israeli uh, announcer on the TV, and he went to Washington and he went to visit. And he gets a shock when he goes into the Supreme Court. He sees all the statues of these great jurists from all over the world. And there's a massive statue. And, he, and there's a Moses. And Moses, what's Moses? I'm Jewish, but what's Moses doing in the, in the Supreme Court of America? And he asks the guard, happens to be a black uh, guard over there. And he says, tell me, he says, do you know who this is? Said, of course. He said, that's Moses. <laughs> so here's a secular Israeli. And he said, Moses, the Supreme, you know. Where, what do the Israelis really look up to? They look up to America. And what's in America's Supreme Court? The statue of Moses, the biggest statue there. Amazing. So it's amazing. Why? Because Moses is a lawgiver. He was the lawgiver, and his law came down through all the laws, uh, British law, and eventually Roman, uh, <laughs> slip of the tongue, American law. So American law is based on Judaic law. The founders of America were very much into the Bible. The Quakers and others were into the Bible. So a lot of the Jewish laws were made into American law. So the lawgiver par excellence that look up to is Moses. So no other human being like him. We have a, a, one of the 13 principles of faith written by Rambam. There was no other prophet like Moses. No one else would come along and alter one of the things that Moses said. All the laws that Moses said cannot be altered because Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest prophet. If another prophet arises... And he says to change these laws, we say, no, sorry, you have no idea how to be a prophet. Moses was the greatest prophet. He's the only one who had clear vision. No one else, everyone else has cloudy vision. They see through a frosted glass. Moses could see through a clear glass. Philosophers have argued for many years. Does the great man make the times? Or do the times make the great man? So these are big philosophers, Carlyle, Emerson, Nietzsche. And they, they maintain that the great man, by his intellect, personality, and ability, changes the history of civilization. Other philosophers, I'm not going to go through all the list, including Tolstoy, maintain that the march of civilization creates the great man. And uh, Tolstoy in War and Peace tries to prove that even Napoleon the Great was only a pawn in the march of civilization. Both groups, however, fail to see one thing. What makes a person consider someone great is not only what he does, but also what they see in him. People say a man is great when he espouses their ideals. Right? So when why the Romans make such a great thing with Caesar? Because Caesar gave them their ideals. Their ideals was man of war, power, and uh, conquering the world. That's, uh, that's the ability. Alexander the Great, great man. Why is he great? He, again, he was, a, he was a powerful uh, conqueror of the world. Uh, why did Germany make a hero of Bismarck? Because he was a strong 
diplomat and ruthless politician. Why do we consider Eliyahu Navi, Elijah the prophet, our hero? With a special cup at the Seder and a special chair at a, brick, at a, at a brisk. Because he loved justice and was dedicated to serve God. Different reasons. Our heroes are totally different. We have our heroes are the ones who love justice. Our heroes are the ones who dedicate themselves to serve God. Why do we consider the great rabbis, Zulna Gaon, Rabbi Yosef Karo, Rambam, Benishchai, heroes? Because they loved learning. So what do we see in Moses, Moshe, that makes him our hero? Number one, hatred of aggression. We're going to talk about that. Number two, love of justice. Number three, compassion on the daughters of Yitro and on the little sheep and on the Jewish man who was being beaten. Number four is humility. He was so concerned about his brother's honor, Aaron's honor. He was willing to forego being the leader. Number five, his readiness to sacrifice for his ideals and his people. And he was willing to have his name erased from the book after the sin of the golden calf. He says, Hashem, if you're going to destroy them, erase my name from your book, his self-sacrifice for the Jewish people. Number six, he was the greatest teacher. He taught us everything we know. Everything was handed down through Moses, Hashem. Except for the first two commandments and the Ten Commandments, it says the, the rabbis say the Jews heard them directly from God. That's what the Bible tells us. Moshe Rabbeinu was responsible for all the other 611 commandments. So he was our teacher par excellence. Moses was the Jewish ideal because from him we can see the traits that we admire. Jewish traits that we admire, righteousness and learning. What are the traits we admire the most? Righteousness and learning. These are our heroes. This is the key to the Jewish souls of the past. Righteousness and learning. We don't care because it's powerful. Power is measured. As the Pirkei tells us, who is a great person? A person who can conquer their own desires. That's a great person. That's the kind of power we respect and we admire. Jews. What kind of souls do we possess today? Who are our heroes? Is it the artist or musician or actor or spokesman or politician or person who's wealthy today? Big, big thing. Who's our, our heroes today? The wealthy people. And that's how a person can tell what kind of soul they have. Who are our heroes? The person respects those who are righteous, who are humble, and who are learned, that shows what kind of soul they have and what kind of ideals they have. And that's something we have to work on in ourselves. Who are our heroes? Do we have a, you know, the famous joke, a guy goes to a restaurant and uh, there's pictures of all the forefathers on the walls of the restaurant. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, uh, Joseph, David, King David. And he asked the proprietor of the restaurant, he says, tell me, is this restaurant kosher? And the, and the proprietor says, look around you. You see all these uh, great heroes of Israel it's under their supervision. He said, yes. He says, if your picture was up there and they were serving me, I'd be much more comfortable. But uh, <laughs> so it's not what pictures we have, but pictures are also very important. What we have, who are our heroes? Who are our heroes? This is the question we have to ask. Who are our children's heroes? Who are our grandchildren's heroes? You know, when I was in Vancouver, it was away from all, you know, Jewish society, really. It was like, you know, like uh, there were like three rabbis and that's it. That's the Judaism in Vancouver. Like, I think 200 people kept kosher out of 25,000. 
and my children, you know, and they're watching and they're, they're, they're friends, they're all collecting these baseball cards. And so I started buying them rabbi cards, <laughs> Torah cards and rabbi cards. And they started collecting rabbi cards. This way they knew every single rabbi around the globe. And everyone else talking about, so who are your heroes? That's, that's how we raise our children. Who are our heroes? We have to pass this down through our children. One of our biggest heroes are we talking about now, Moshe Rabbeinu, one of our biggest heroes. Him, his sister Miriam, one of our great prophetesses. His mother, Yocheved, and his father, Abraham, and his brother, Aaron, and his wife, Zipporah. These are the great heroes. And his mother, his stepmother, Bitya, which who became Jewish. And it was one of our heroines in the story. Amazing how she saved his life. The Rambam asks, what are the two expressions doing? And when it talks about Moshe growing up, it says, Vaidal hayeled vaidamal. Right, so one he that's the Ramban Nachmanides that he says there's physical growth, and the second expression is about spiritual growth. Physical growth and spiritual growth. He became an Adam Gadol, a great personality. The fact that he went to see his brethren suffering indicates that he was a great personality. And the definition of greatness is every empathizing with the pain of others. And that's something which, again, we have to add to others, the greatest. Qualities we admire in others is empathizing with the pain of other people. That's, that's something which is, is very hard to do psychologically for a person. Is, you know, a person says, you know, my heart, my heart is already, I'm already, uh, my life is tough enough when I got to empathize with other people and feel other people's pain. Yes, that's part of our job, feeling other people's pain. A person cannot be a good doctor or a good nurse or a good, psychologists or a good lawyer without feeling other people's pain and that's you know, when a person feels other people's pain they pray for them they try and help them giving sabakai you feel other people's pain you see people in the soup kitchen we're lining up it's we've got a person got to feel the pain that's the definition of greatness no bearing other people's burdens that is our challenge as human beings it's so hard looking beyond our egocentricity and our, our challenge as parents and educators is to teach children to look beyond themselves. That's the hardest part. To, to teach people not to be egocentric, to teach, think people, to teach them to be outside. Think outside. Think outside your egocentricity. Think about other people. Think about other people around you. Think about the world around you. Think about the poor around you. Think about needy around you. Think about people in trouble around you. Okay, so we are talking about Parshat Shemot. Number one, B'nai Israel settled in Egypt. Is that good or bad? It seems this is the golden age of uh, Jacob, the Aqua of Egypt. The last 17 years of his life were in Egypt. We looked after by his famous son, the Viceroy of Egypt. This is the golden age of Jacob's life, right? And it's the golden age of Jews, right? They're living in Goshen and uh, peace and quiet and security. And then Joseph dies and their lives go upside down. As we've seen many times over in Jewish history, there's a pharaoh who does not know Joseph. All of a sudden, everything is topsy-turvy. The shibud, which means the exile, is, becomes nasty. It becomes uh, exile of slavery. The Jews become slaves in Egypt. And the rabbis tell us it started through pharaoh asking for volunteers. Who volunteers? Of course, Jews are going to volunteer. Yes, he needs, I need uh, volunteers to build these massive cities, the Bittom and Ramses, and these cities 
parts of them still exist today. You can go and see the archaeological sites in Egypt. I just saw a video of uh, Ramses, the, the city of Ramses, the big, with a big icon of Ramses over there watching over it. This is probably the Ramses of, of the Exodus, Ramses II or third. Um, so uh, Ramses, these are the builders, the Jewish builders. You know, we don't think of Jews as builders. And, uh, but these are the Jewish builders of these uh, pyramids and these cities. And uh, the Shibud, you see all the, all the clay bricks. You don't see so many clay bricks. You don't see these uh, videos of clay bricks of these big towns in old Egypt. And who made these clay bricks? You can still see the straw in, these, in the bricks. Amazing. These bricks are thousands of years old. All from the Jewish populations that have made these bricks. You're going to see. So the birth and life of Moshe. God hears the cries of B'nai Israel. This is number four. Number five, God appears to Moshe at the burning bush. And that is basically the first appearance of God to, to a human being, probably since the time of, of Jacob. So hundreds of years, no appearance of God to a human being. This is our records. So from Jacob to Moses, God never appeared to anyone. We have no records of it. And, and this appearance of God to Moses was on Har Sinai. People don't realize it was on the Mount Sinai where God promises him, you will come back and worship me on this mountain. I'm going to give you the Torah on this mountain. So it's the same mountain God appeared to Moses. And just like God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he's going to appear to all of Israel later on. After the uh, redemption from Egypt. And Moshe eventually accepts the challenge of his mission. We're going to talk about this, Rashi, when we have time. And Rashi says he argued with God for seven days. Imagine arguing with God. What a chutzpah to argue with God. You can't say Jews have no chutzpah. And the fact is that we argue with God all the time. How do we argue with God? When we pray. When we pray, we are try trying to change events around us. In a sense, we're arguing with God's plan. God says, you know what? There's going to be a devastation, a flood, or whatever it is. And a Jew, a Jew prays, Hashem, please stop the flood. Please stop this. Stop the famine. Stop this guy is feeling sick. Please, Hashem, make him healthy. We're arguing with Hashem. Obviously, in a very nice way, in a very uh, humble way. And whatever it is, we know God's will will be God's will, but we have to argue that's our mission. Our mission is to pray, try and change events, and we have the power to change events through our prayers. So Moshe Rabbeinu accepts the challenges of his mission. So why was Moshe Rabbeinu chosen out of all the 600,000 men between the ages of 20 and 60 in Egypt? Moshe Rabbeinu was already past retirement age. He was 80 years old. When he started, I mean, it's hard to imagine an eight-year-old person. You know, this should give us all hope, you know. I'm going to start my mission at my age of 80. I got still got time to go, boy. So <laughs> imagine starting your mission at the age of 80 and retiring at 120. And we see this also, Rabbi Akiva also said, you see, he, was, uh, he also started his mission late, and he finished 120. Imagine these guys lived a good, strong, healthy old age. Okay, the desert experience was good for them. Being a shepherd was good. It's healthy, healthy lifestyle. And he lived to the ripe old age of 80. And it says he, was, he never even got weak. His eyes never got dim. He was as healthy at the age of 120 as he was a young man. Okay, so Moshe Abenu, why was he chosen? His potential for holiness will not be addressed unless he shows he's worthy. Now, what makes a person worthy of being the leader of the Jewish people, to get the Torah. This amazing, amazing concept. What makes a person worthy of being a Jewish leader? 
this is amazing. Let's let's go through this very very uh, briefly. Number one, Moshe Rabbeinu was faced with five confrontations in his life, and how he's going to handle these five confrontations is the test to see whether he is worthy of being the leader of the Jewish people. Is he the one going to be the one that's going to take out the Jewish region? Now, I don't know about you, but I was just thinking, you know, I was thinking about how if you look at the pictures of, of the pyramids and the, I'm sure the massive palaces that Pharaoh had and the guards he had. Can you imagine the courage it takes to walk to Pharaoh's palace and demand an audience with this great Pharaoh? I mean, it's hard to imagine, you know, we don't talk about that. I was just thinking about that last week. Uh, Plus, got to really try and visualize these stories in their mind because it's it's really hard to really grasp the awesomeness of the events over here we're talking about. But let's just talk about the small things first. So number one, his first confrontation is a Gentile and a Jew. This is the, it says the first day he went out, look about he was raised in the palace. He was raised as a very privileged, spoiled probably boy. And the first day he goes out of the palace. So I want to read this to you inside. The first, it, it happened in those days. This is chapter two of Exodus of, of Shemot, verse 11. Yud it happened in those days that Moses grew up and went out to his brethren and observed their burdens. Imagine, he never knew about this. Or maybe he knew about it, but he didn't see it. First time he's seeing it. And he sees an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brethren. He turned this way and that way. And he saw there was no Ish, there was no man. And he struck down the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. Moshe Rabbeinu, the first day he goes out, he sees injustice, he can't stand it. And he strikes the Egyptian and he hides him in the sand. He killed him. He killed an Egyptian with his own hands. So he's faced with his confrontation. Gentile and Jew. Bad Gentile, good Jew. Well, let's say good Jew. We don't know how, was, how good this Jew was. Well, apparently, he wasn't such a good Jew. We're going to talk about why. How come he's it? Number two, what happens is he goes out the next day. And what does he see? Two Hebrews were fighting. He says to the wicked one, why are you striking your fellow? Okay, I see the Egyptian was striking his Jew, his the Jew. That was understandable. He was the taskmaster, he'd be the Jew, the Jew didn't do his quota, the Jew was tired, whatever he was striking him. But why are you hitting your fellow man? Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? I can understand. You must be wicked to hit your hit your fellow. In fact, uh, the Shukhanar says if a, if a Jew raises his hand to strike another Jew, he's considered wicked. He's not allowed to be a witness in a Jewish court. Can you imagine? He has to do Teshuba before he can be a witness in a Jewish court. So two Hebrew men were fighting. He says to the wicked one, why would you strike your fellow? And look what the man replies. Who appointed you? Have you ever heard this one line before? I've heard it many times. Who appointed you as a dignitary, a ruler, a judge over us? Do you want to murder me as you murdered the Egyptian? Now the question we have is, how did everyone know that Moshe Rabbeinu murdered the Egyptian? Because it says when he when he hit the Egyptian, there was no one around. So who told people that he killed the Egyptian? And the answer is, it must have been the Jew he saved. 
The Hebrew he saved, imagine what a way to pay him back. The Hebrew he saved, maybe from death, probably from death, is the tale bearer who's telling everyone, you know, Moses, okay, he saved my life. He doesn't have to say who saved his life. He doesn't have to say who killed the Egyptian. He can, a person can say, you know, he, this guy saved my life. No, he doesn't have to say how he saved his life. There's many ways of saving someone's life. But he told everyone who is this Moses who saved my life and he killed the Egyptian. Uh-oh, now Moshe Rabbein realized he's in danger. The matter is known. And Moshe was frightened. And then we have the third level. Moshe runs away. And he gets to Midian. And he, and he sees the minister of Midian has seven daughters. Boy. And what happens is they're drawing water for their sheep. And the shepherds come and they drove them away. And Moshe gets up and saves them. He can't take injustice. Moshe Rabbeinu cannot sit down while he's watching injustice. And even this Gentile and Gentile injustice doesn't make a difference. Doesn't make a difference to Moshe Rabbeinu who is involved in the injustice. Injustice is injustice. I'm going to get involved. He saves the girls from the shepherds and he waters their sheep. They come to their father. And he asked them, how come you came back so early today? Their father's used to this. Every day the, the sh other shepherds come and drive them away and they don't come back till late. This time they came early and they said, an Egyptian man saved us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered our sheep. This is Chesed. You can save someone's life, but you don't have to help the water the sheep. And this is after he ran away from Egypt. So he's tired and he's running and he's exhausted and he feeds the sheep. He said to his daughters, so where is he? Why do you leave him? Come on, there's seven daughters. I need a husband for them. Come on, go run, get him. Where is he? Why do you leave him? Come, bring him here. Let him eat bread. That's amazing. Okay, this is Gentile and Gentile. Okay. Number four, getting along with Yitro. Imagine, Yitro says, the priest of Midian. Like, can you imagine the theological discussions between Yitro and Moshe? It's hard to imagine. The rabbi said us Yitro was one of the three advisors of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had Bilam, he had Yitro, and he had Job, the book of Job, Yob. And these are the three advisors. Bilam says, kill the Jews. Yitro says, save the Jews. And that's why Yitro had to run away. And Yob just kept quiet. So eventually, you had to suffer and made him scream. Hashem made him scream. You kept quiet a long time. I'm going to make you scream. That's one of the answers. Why did Job suffer? Why was Job suffering? Job suffering. That's the Jewish answer. Because he kept quiet when he saw injustice. Moshe Rabbein never kept quiet. It doesn't make a difference. Who's, who's uh, on the right side, the left side? Moshe screams. Injustice is intolerable. I cannot take it. Gentile, Jew, Jew and Jew. Gentile and Gentile. I just can't take it. Yitro. Imagine the theological discussions. And then the fifth story is amazing because it's about sheep. The Midrash brings the story. He sees this uh, little sheep not getting looked after by the older sheep. They're pushing away when it comes to, the, to eating and to the water. And he look, picks up the little baby sheep and he looks after the sheep. And the says, you're the shepherd I need. You're going to be my shepherd. So I just want to go through these different stories, amazing story. And to lead the Bnei, the Bnei Israel back to Abraham's vision, we need someone who has recognized the universality of man. In fact, the parasha deals with four kinds of people, good Jew, bad Jew, good Gentile, and bad Gentile.
And we see Moshe Rabbeinu interacting in all these four cases. Is he going to treat each case on its merits or by his biases? That is the test of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu is successful in passing these tests. Let's see the first test. The Torah tells us, Vayar ish mitri make ish Look at the word ish is used so many times. Vayar ish mitri make ish mitri. Egyptian man, this word man is used over and over again. The Egyptian man is hitting the Jewish man. And then it says, Vayar ken ish. He sees there's no man. So the word man is used three times. The Egyptian man is hitting, hitting the, the Jewish man. And he looks here and there and he sees there's no man. What's going on? Why is it strange language? Why does it say he saw there's no man? There are two men there. What do you mean there's no man? So there's a few commentaries which are very interesting. Number one, Rashi. Rashi says Moses was looking into the future. He's not going to kill the Egyptian before he sees the future. Are his descendants going to be good or evil? He looks into the future of the Egyptian. I can't kill him before I know what the future is going to be for him. Ayarki Enish, he says. This Egyptian is not going to have a man. He's not going to have, nothing good is going to come out of him. Okay, whack. That was it. That's the first explanation. Number two. Makom she'en ish. tells us, chapter two, Mishnah six. In a place where there's no man, you be the man. In a place where no one is standing up for justice, you be the one standing up for justice. So it says, Vayarki enish. He says, there's no one over there standing up for justice. I'm going to stand up for justice. There was no one else willing to stop this Egyptian from killing this Jew. By the way, there's a very sordid tale behind this story. The Midrash fills us in, Jewish literature fills us in. This Egyptian had sent away this Jew. He fancied the Jew's wife. Her name was Shulamit Batibri. He sent the Jew out one day and he went in and had relations with the man's wife that night. And the man found out. And he started arguing, and that's why the Egyptian wanted to kill him. He tried to kill him. So that was the Egyptian that Moses killed. The adulterer, um, it's, one, it's the only case, the Torah tells us, where an Egyptian had relations with a Jewish girl. It's the only case. And the son, unfortunately from that, from that woman, unfortunately not her fault. The son was the Megadev, was the man who cursed God later on. So why did he curse God? It says God killed his father. What do you mean his father? Moses killed his father. So the rabbis say, how did Moses kill the man's father? The Torah tells us that you have to read the Hebrew, the English doesn't have it. Okay, so he used, it says, the Midrash says he used God's name to kill them. He killed him with God's name, so that's why the man later on cursed the name of God that killed his father, the Egyptian. Anyway, it's interesting, let's move on. The third explanation, the Natsir says, there are four kinds, four types of names used for people in the Bible. Adam, we know Adam was man, he was a man. Gever, which is like a vura, mighty. Enosh, which is a human being. And Ish, four levels of human beings. Ish is the highest of. Rashi says, Ish can even be referring to an angel, Rashi says. And Moshe sees Ish Mitzri, Hitting Ish Ivri, he thought they're both important. They're both on the level of Ish. They're both on this highest level. So when he, when he saw them, before he really analyzed the actions, he put them both on the same level. It's interesting, in a Jewish court, you have to see the, the plaintiff and the defendant on the same level, same height, 
they've got to be dressed on the same level. And not, one can't be dressed in tatters, one can't be dressed in a suit. They've got to be wearing similar clothes. Otherwise, you, the judges may treat them differently. So same thing. He's, for him, Moses says they're both on the same level as far as I'm concerned. Then he analyzes the situation. And then he says, you know what? I see that none of them are a man. None of them are on this level. Not the person who's hitting and not the person who's being hit. They lost. The oppressor and the oppressed both lose their humanity. That's what the Germans tried to do to the Jews in those concentration camps. They oppressed them to the point to try and turn them into animals. To fight over a piece of bread or to little piece of soup or to fight over a pillow, whatever it was, they tried to dehumanize it. And that's why it says Moshe Rabbeinu saw neither the taskmaster nor the slave were people, were humans. They were dehumanized, unfortunately. Terrible, terrible. And that's what happens under oppression. A person can lose their humanity. And that's something which a person's going to keep trying to keep their humanity. The humanity of the person alive. There's a famous psychologist during the Holocaust who says this, and he survived. And he's, he tried to keep his humanity, he was trying to keep his values in the camps and trying to think of the good, positive things going on and recording them. And that's how he kept alive, he said. I kept looking, trying to keep my humanity. Otherwise, a person can turn into an animal very quickly. And there's not enough food and not enough supplies and there's not enough things to go around. So it's important to keep our humanity. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu saw. So there's no man. There's no humanity over there. Both the oppressor and the oppressed lost their humanity. The Archeanish. Number four, the Jew who he saved was the talebearer, he says. And that's why he says maybe that's the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu did not want to save the Jews. He tells God, I can't go. I can't go. Please find someone else. Because the Jews themselves are talebearers. Maybe they don't deserve to be saved. Maybe they don't deserve to be saved. Okay. The second case is uh, Jew fighting Jew. Terrible case. And again, Moshe Rabbeinu is unbiased. He sees who is right and he sees who is wrong. Oppression on any side is not is injustice. So with a Hebrew, a non-Hebrew beating a Hebrew or a Hebrew beating a Hebrew, it doesn't make a difference. He gets involved. And then he goes to Midian. He can't take injustice, even between non-Jew and non-Jew. The shepherds against these uh, women who he does, has no idea who they are. He saves them. So this is a sign of justice. And then he lives with uh, Yitro and he marries Yitro's daughter. And this is a time, imagine, in a sense, he's intermarried. Why is Moses intermarried? And one of the answers is that he doesn't want to be associated with the Jewish people. If there's tale bearers, he saves someone's life and the guy turns on him and tells tales. Imagine, oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. So Moshe Rabbeinu. So what's also interesting is how God raised the leader. Where does he raise? What better place to raise the leader of the Jews to give them the best education possible, and that's in Pharaoh's palace. Hard to imagine. Think about the irony of the situation. I want to raise the leader who's going to lead the Jews out of Egypt, and Pharaoh's trying to kill the Jews, and his own daughter's going to save this leader, and he himself 
is going to raise this leader in his house, which is wild. This is like God's sense of humor. You know, you're trying to get rid of them and you yourself are going to save them. You yourself. I'm going to make you yourself the biggest enemy of the Jews. Raise the leader of the Jews in your own house. That is the irony. That is, imagine Pharaoh must be kicking himself in his grave. I raised their leader. I raised my biggest enemy in my own house. Can you imagine what he's saying? Gosh. So it's amazing. That is, that is really, this is one of the things that really stand out in this story is. Uh, anyway, so Moses now is looking at that little sheep. Sheep runs away. Where does it run? Runs to, runs to Har Sinai, runs to Mount Sinai. And he sees this burning bush. We all know the story. And it says, Vasarli wrote, he turned to see. Moshe Rabbeinu was inquisitive. He had an inquisitive nature. He sees things strange and he wants to know what's going on. Why is this bush burning? Can you imagine? If he didn't turn to see what's going on, the whole story might not happen. He turns to see why is this fire on the bush and the bush is not being consumed. It's an artificial kind of fire. And he hears the voice, Moshe, Moshe, and turns. The Midrash says he heard the voice of his father, Amram. Because Hashem does not want to shock someone. You might hear a voice coming from nowhere, Moshe, Moshe, and you hear your, your name being called and you don't recognize the voice. It's, it's surprising enough. So he used the father's voice to calm him down, Moshe. It's a very soothing kind of way of calling someone using the father's voice. Okay, so he gets the, the, the orders to go and lead the Jewish people. So how does he become this leader, this amazing leader he's raised in the in the palace Moshe went to his brothers he cried for them he felt their pain and uh, he turned to see God and uh, because he turned that's that's what we see about Moshe since he turned to see most people when they see injustice they close their eyes Moshe Rabbeinu's quality was he got involved you know I saw a beautiful idea this is something I heard a great rabbi, one of the conventions I was in Israel when I was... Okay, so he says like this, Moshe Rabbeinu, what was the sign to Moshe Rabbeinu? The first sign to Moshe Rabbeinu was, take your staff and throw it on the ground. Because Moshe Rabbeinu's question to God is, God, what's going on? 210 years of slavery. Come on, God, what are you doing to the Jewish people? And God says, I'll give you a sign. Take your stick and throw it on the ground. And it turned into a snake. Now, what's the message? What's the moral ethical answer to Moshe Rabbeinu's question. The answer is the straightest distance between two points is a stick. It's a line, straight line. A straight line is like Moshe Rabbeinu's staff. So Moshe Rabbeinu's staff is a straight line. And take that staff. And this is my answer to you, your question. Take the staff and throw it around. Hashem says, I don't operate in history using straight lines. I don't operate in people's lives using straight lines. My way of operation is the way, if you look at the snake, how the snake travels, you'll never figure out which way the snake is going, right? Because the snake coils and turns and twists and turns and twists and turns. Hashem says, that's how I operate in history. Because if I operate in straight lines, people say, oh, there's a guy. It's too obvious. So Hashem operates in history like the stock market goes up and it goes down. You don't know which way it's going to go for sure. It's going to go down. It's going to go up. And they're guessing inflation is coming down. Someone's going to go up. Everyone's in, you know, that's the way Hashem operates in history. 
in Jewish history at least, our Jewish history is, you can't even ask Hashem, what happened after the Holocaust? What happened to the Holocaust? What happened? And then all of a sudden you have the state of Israel. Hashem said, I don't operate like that. I don't operate in straight lines. Things don't, there's, there's curves in God's world. Otherwise, history would be too easy. You know, Jewish history is, is not something a person can put down and say, listen, this is what's going to happen tomorrow. No one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know. No one knows. There's Hashem. But the prophecies in the Bible are coming true around us. We see them coming true. So individualism, King David gave us personal individual prayers. Halacha, however, is for everyone. Agada, however, Agadita, the stories can be interpreted by individuals. When it comes to halacha, okay, that's the great rabbis, the halachas, when it comes to these midrashim, the beautiful midrashim, the stories are for everyone. Let's interpret them in the right way. And one of the lessons we learn over here is the idea of not speaking Lashon especially about our leaders and that's why Moshe Rabbeinu gave up on us and nearly did not want to take us but tomorrow we're going to next week sorry next week we're going to continue with the audacity and the courage of Moshe Rabbeinu to go into Pharaoh's palace I mean that I still can't you know when I see it and that's the answer how did where did Moshe Rabbeinu get that courage from and the answer is God tells him next week Bo el paro come with me to Pharaoh I'm going to be there with you. Don't worry. <laughs> if we have that ironclad guarantee, I guarantee you, we'll never be scared in our lives. But it's rather shame. We'll talk about it next week. I wish you all many blessings from Yerushalayim and Kodesh. Enjoy your weekend and let's have peace and security around the world. Take care. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.